Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, The Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is episode six, Not in White Gloves. In my last episode, in both France and China, still in the early days of their respective revolutions, the nations were becoming unrecognizable to what they were just a few years before the revolutions began. These changes included dress, wardrobe, haircuts, art, and even the way each person addressed another person. In France, I talked about the great fear, which the summer of 1789 is known by, caused by a combination of food shortages and violence spreading into the countryside and challenging the feudal order. The National Assembly, also referred by now as the National Constituent Assembly, was reacting to the great fear, and they legislated that summer sweeping reforms to help put out the fires and address the issues that faced the country. The National Assembly also adopted the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, more or less mirroring the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Also, we learned about the Women's March to Versailles that fall, culminating in in the return of the king and the royal family to Paris permanently. In China, the policy of free travel for student Red Guards did not work out so well and was quickly stopped. The Red Guards again morphed into another kind of guard, although substantively were the same as the precedent iteration of Red Guards, and they all fought against themselves. We saw how Mao got the People's Liberation Army involved in early 1967 to control the violence. There were instances in Wuhan and Shanghai in early and mid-1967 that removed the city leaders to the point in the middle of 1967, Mao Zedong decided to allow the Red Guards to carry weapons. In this episode, I'll talk about the confiscation of the church property in France we will start to see fractures in the National Assembly and the concomitant rise of political clubs. In China, the cult of Mao settles in. Violence surges again, but would again be stopped by the army. The Red Guard phase will end, and new violence begins by other actors organized by Chairman Mao. I want to begin this episode with a quote by Vladimir Lenin. Quote, you cannot make a revolution in white gloves, end of quote. I ended the last episode reporting about the National Assembly's decision to confiscate church property. 
The National Assembly's actions in early December of the year 1789 against the church went further than confiscating its property. They also reorganized the church and canceled clergy privileges. The assembly issued a new currency based solely on confiscated church property or its value. The assignats sold were backed by the church's seized property, and they were sold to pay off the nation's debt. In July 1790, the National Assembly passed the civil constitution of the clergy, essentially turning the clergy into state employees and the church an arm of the state. Clergy were forced to swear an oath of allegiance supporting the revolution. Many clergy walked out of the National Assembly in disgust over these measures. For a while afterward, some violence even flared up over these changes. And the Pope never accepted the new arrangements and the schism that resulted would last until the end of the French Revolution and Napoleon's intervention in the year 1801. Last episode, I briefly mentioned a little bit about the Constitution, the civil constitution for the country that was an ongoing project of the National Assembly, and it continued to push out various drafts. It's a little interesting to watch them come together on this. Their direction seemed to be they wanted a constitutional monarchy. And it has been observed that if the king had cooperated in this process, it might have worked. Of course, we know he did not. And, as they say, the rest is history. The king would get a new title under one of the drafts of the King of the French, clearly indicating the king had no power over the sovereign nation. His income would be appropriated by the legislature. He could pick his ministers, but the legislature could impeach them. The National Assembly introduced the concept of the active citizen involved in voting eligibility. Only men over 25 could vote, and only if they met a threshold on the amount of taxes they paid. By the year 1790, however, there were signs among the nobles that all was not well and it was not working out. For every noble believing things in France were working out, there was a noble believing the opposite, and nobles started to flee France and the National Assembly. Observers noted there was a steady stream of emigres out of France. Many were particularly horrified about the acts of violence being committed in the countryside. In some cases, Lafayette and his National Guard had to be called out to stop the violence. But many times there was no one there to stop the violence, and the lack of law and order worried everyone particularly the elites and the nobles. As the National Assembly tried to keep up and draft a constitution, they were losing control of the country. We last left, in our last episode, Chairman Mao's call to arms of the Red Guards. In the Red Flag publication magazine, 
one of the party's official mouthpieces, there appeared on August 1, 1967, an editorial by Madame Mao calling on mass organizations to seize weapons. The Cultural Revolution Group believed the people would never be able to free themselves from the capitalist rotors in the CCP if they were not armed. The Red Flag article was a call for civil war, to seize military power and not just government power. As a result, there was a tidal wave of violence. By the summer of 1967, the Red Guards were fully armed. And on August 22, 1967, the English mission was burned to the ground by the Red Guards. They had been laying siege to it for weeks before the incident. Other countries' missions were also targeted. All foreigners came under suspicion in China, particularly the English, because of Hong Kong. Foreign journalists were detained, and in some cases, for years. The burning of the English embassy, however, was internationally denounced. The Cultural Revolution Group had gone too far, and some of its members took the blame for it. That's right. Even members of Mao's Cultural Revolution Group and his army were not immune from his wrath and quick scapegoating. This caused a split in the army, and Mao distanced himself from all of it. But Mao also began to realize that things in China had gone too far. He began to mistrust his fellow Cultural Revolution Group members, and particularly Lin Biao, also the army leader. Mao believed that he was exploiting the army schism for his own benefit and self-aggrandizement. In early September 1967, Mao authorized a portion of the army to stop the violence all throughout China. The army now had orders to shoot to kill. Mao also turned to admonishing the country to stop the fighting and urging a greater alliance of all revolutionary forces. The Cultural Revolution was then sent in a retreat, and by National Day, October 1, 1967, China was relatively peaceful. There was even an enormous state-supported march through Tiananmen Square that October 1st day. Even the opposing factions were forced to walk together to show unity, however feigned or not. After the celebration, the party mouthpiece, the Red Flag magazine, fell silent, and some of the Cultural Revolution group left Beijing. Zhou Enlai was left in charge. Meanwhile, Mao set a deadline for the end of 1968 to establish and have in place revolutionary party committees everywhere. By the end of 1967, the Cultural Revolution was flagging People were weary, and the excitement as before had vanished. The schools were still not fully open, and they would not be for another eight or so years, and many public places were still closed. There were no museums, theaters, tea houses, and boredom set in. Leisure activities that had been banned before 
because they were considered bourgeoisie, came back. Cadre that were suspected of revisionism were given a chance to rethink their positions and rejoin the ranks of the Revolutionary Alliance. Along with the trouble the National Assembly faced in the year 1790 were plummeting tax revenues. Through tax evasion, inability to administrative collect, poor economic conditions, whatever the cause, it was destroying the fiscal fiber of France. In some areas, tax revenues were down 80% to their pre-revolutionary levels. There were also some organized peasant efforts to disrupt all the taxes. Through 1790 through 1791, the National Assembly set about to abolish all indirect taxes and some direct taxes as well, and they were replaced by three direct taxes, a land tax, a personal property tax, and a business profit tax. No exemptions or special status. By this time, even the popular Necker would no longer be able to hold off the fiscal disaster. By 1790, his popularity was fading anyway. Necker finally resigned in September of 1790. Fitting as it may seem, he was arrested on his way out of France, on his way to Switzerland, and accused of emigrating. A number of counter-revolutionaries, nobles, clergy, and some bourgeois citizens wanted to abandon the revolution and emigrate out of France. Known as emigres, many of them wanted their lives, fortunes, and nation back, believing it had been stolen by the revolution. Many of them assembled close to the northeast border near Belgium, which was then the frontier of France, seeking help from other European leaders. Initially, other European leaders seemed uninterested in getting involved in France's problems. But after the National Assembly had proclaimed the right of the people to self-determination was an international concept, some worry began among other European leaders. And when the National Assembly voted to abolish the symbolism of the old regime, even more people wanted to leave France. From 1790 to 1791 saw the rise of political clubs, the Jacobins, most notably a radical political club, identified by one of its well-known leaders, Maximilian Robespierre, more on him later, and there were many more, but no more famous than the Jacobins. The National Assembly during this period continued with drafting a constitution, but divisions were appearing in the National Assembly. The aristocratic deputies are right-wing because they sat, they sat on the right side of the Assembly and were a more moderate voice during this period, began to oppose the revolution. Then there were the Royalists, or the Royalist Democrats, or Monarchians. They wanted France, politically organized like England, and use their constitution as a model. There was the National Party as well, representing the center to center left, and including such men as 
Henri Mirabeau, Lafayette, and the mayor of Paris, Bali. And of course, there was the radical party, the Jacobins, led by Deputy Robespierre. As the CCP's prestige waned, the cult of Mao waxed. In July of the year 1968, another new campaign was launched. It was called the Three Loyalties and Four Boundless Loves. It featured the worship of Mao, requiring absolute loyalty to him, his ideals, and his movement. What schools that did open in mid to late 1968 found it difficult to get essential supplies except for the one thing that was in abundance, Mao's little red book. This period especially saw Mao likenesses everywhere. They were ubiquitous. Sculptures and artists competed for the biggest Mao statue, or painting, or drawing. But they had to be careful. A wrong color or any defect in any detail could bring that person harsh consequences, including beatings and long imprisonment. There was still violence in China in 1968. That didn't go away. In July 1968, Mao finally intervened and condemned the factional fighting as it was sabotaging his cultural revolution, and he ordered it stopped. Estimates are that that summer, upwards of 80,000 were killed. Mao's first directive failed, and about two weeks later, on July 24, 1968, he issued another new command to the rebels, stop the violence and lay down their arms. To support this effort, he sent tens of thousands of workers to universities to spread the word. Fight with words, not with weapons, was the new motto. In August 1968, marked the official end of the Red Guards about two years after they had started, and Mao suspended the Cultural Revolution then. On September 7, 1968, Zhou Enlai announced that revolutionary committees had been established in all provinces and major cities in China. The Cultural Revolution Group cheered that the nation was finally all red and the nation was ready to fulfill the chairman's call and vision. Beneath the surface of this announcement was a call to cleanse the class ranks. Time to settle accounts. A campaign had been launched to root out traitors and renegades. It would dominate the lives of everyone as millions were persecuted from the summer of 1968 to the fall of 1969. This measure was intended to rid the CCP of senior members, and in October 1968, Mao used the measure to accuse Liu Shaoqi officially of treachery and of being a criminal. He would ultimately be expelled from the CCP. Over the next several months, over 5,000 cadre were arrested and executed, The new campaign no longer targeted capitalist rotors or revisionists. Instead, the focus was on alleged secret spies in service of the enemies. The revolutionary committees were responsible for searching and seeking and removing all the alleged secret spies. These committees set up their own judge and juries and executioners. So it is very clear 
that I have talked about numerous campaigns in the Cultural Revolution. Each of them all led to violent and deadly results. So it is a legitimate question to ask at this juncture, what, if anything, was different about this latest campaign? But it was different, at least in the intended targets. Mao did not like the suffocating and enormous bureaucracy within the CCP. He wanted a more streamlined structure that would bend to his every whim quickly and without question. And the revolutionary committees were exactly what Mao had been searching. They were largely run by the army, or at least that faction of the army, loyal to him. From the middle of 1968, China looked like a military dictatorship. In the next episode, King Louis XVI attempts to flee France and is caught. France gets its constitution. In China, foreigners became targets for purges and violence. And there will be more purges of party leaders. And the start of the infamous Up to the Mountains campaign, where millions of students would be sent to the countryside. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. <laughs>